0: This ad free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Money, Sex, and Space Edition. It's Wednesday, July 20th, 2022. On today's show, loot is the new Maya Rudolph vehicle on Apple TV Plus. She plays a billionaire divorcee looking to restart her life. She hopes against hope on a non-frivolous basis. It also stars Michaela J. Rodriguez and Adam Scott as her philandering ex. And then in the feature film, Good Luck to You, Leo Grand, Emma Thompson stars as a woman seeking her as she puts it, last chance at sexual fulfillment and so hires a male sex worker. He's played by Daryl McCormack. And finally, the images that the James Webb Space Telescope is returning from deep space are a cause for a deep rethink about the cosmos and our place in it. We're joined by science journalist Jamie Green to discuss. But first, joining me is Nicole Perkins, the host of This Is Good For You podcast, and of course, uh, previously of the legendary Thirst Aid Kit. Nicole, welcome back to the show.
1: Thank you so much. I'm excited to be back.
0: It's a, Yeah, it's great to have you back. And of course, Dana Stevens is the film critic. For Slate.com. Hey, Dana.
1: Hello,
2: hello.
0: Uh, shall we make a show?
2: Let us do so.
0: All right, let's do. Uh, in the Apple TV Plus sitcom Loot, Maya Rudolph plays Molly Novak, the wife of a tech billionaire, at least as the show opens, whose fortune ranges up there in the Bezos Musk range. At her own birthday party, she catches his mistress half dressed in his tie closet, smash cut to divorced Molly, third richest woman in America, and now at loose ends. So she decides to go work for her own foundation, which she knows absolutely nothing about. What follows is a workplace comedy in the Veep mode. It also stars Michaela J. Rodriguez as Sophia, her hard-ass boss, and Joel Kim Booster as her personal assistant. All right, let's listen to a clip. In the clip, Maya Rudolph as Molly surprises her new staff with a last-minute retreat on her private jet they're going to go party down in Miami, which uh, they're a little skeptical about.
3: Okay, excuse my language for a second, but what the fuck is going on here? Well, in the words of the immortal wordsmith, Will Smith, Bienvenidos a Miami. Well, not quite yet, but we'll land in a few hours. We're going to Miami! Why? Well, since I'm new here, I thought... I don't really know everyone yet, and what better way to do that than with a fabulous bonding retreat? Okay, I don't even know what's happening right now, but we can't just fly to Miami on a random Tuesday, especially when we have a meeting with Council Member Saldana today. Oh, I had Nicholas call her. We're moving it to a Zoom. I hate Zooms. I don't get to show off my personality. How the hell are they gonna see my sweet side? Sophia, look at everybody. They're so excited. Look, they're taking pictures of my plane. Don't take this away from them. It's all gonna work out. Come on.
0: All right, Nicole. Well, uh loot comes with quite the pedigree. Its creators have uh Parks and Rec and Thirty Rock on their resumes. What'd you what'd you make of the show?
1: You know what? It's a cute show, but it's not something that I'm necessarily going to recommend as a must see, and it's not something that I'm gonna tell people to stay away from. It's just it's um I feel like the comedy is very telegraphed. It's very predictable. Um, all the punchlines and what's going to happen. It's very comforting, I guess. So if you need something that you don't need to like um, figure out or you don't want to anticipate any zags when people should be zigging or anything like that, then this is the show for you. It's, it's just fine.
0: Mm, Dana, just fine? Better worse? Where are you on this?
1: I think I maybe got more pleasure
2: out of it than that. I mean, I maybe it's just the summer and being really sluggish, but I kind of enjoyed parking myself in front of this not perfect but amusing and good-looking, like really polished-looking show for its full as many episodes as are now available. I think there are six episodes that have been released so far. It's not one of the dump all at once shows. It's a release week by week kind of show, and. I would keep watching it although I do agree with Nicole that it's not breaking a lot of new ground. Maya Rudolph is just, she's so much fun to watch and she's having a great time. I don't think it's quite the vehicle that she deserves. And it's a familiar figure. As you were saying, Steve, it's somewhat Veep-like, right? I mean, she's this oblivious rich person who's trying to be a do-gooder without really understanding what sacrifice or work or kind of everyday regular life really means. Uh, And that only goes so far as comedy. But I will say that I think it's a show that finds its footing and that for a workplace comedy, it's a very well done one. I like all the characters. For example, Joel Kim Booster, who we talked about recently, uh, who plays the lead in in Fire Island, is her assistant. Uh, He's very funny. The fashion is fantastic. Apparently, the costumes were designed by a woman who's a good friend of Maya Rudolph and also Mm -hmm. a costume designer. Her name's Kirsten Mann. And uh, the costumes alone, I think, take the show a long way. But... There's things that this show could do that it hasn't done, and Steve, I'm interested to hear you on this as well. I feel like it doesn't really interrogate privilege beyond this one character. I mean, my Rudolph is so lovable that she can make this horrible person with absolutely awful values kind of endearing anyway. Um, but I don't feel like this show goes near far enough in interrogating the world that allows someone to become an eighty-seven billion dollar, you know, widow of a of a tech giant. Uh, or how he got to be a tech giant in the first place. Maybe it will go further toward that later in the season. But for the moment, it seems really content with this, you know, this juxtaposition of the super wealthy and then regular working people, but without any real sense of the system that's propping the whole thing up. Mm.
0: So what you're saying basically is that if you're in a midsummer humidity saturated torpor, you might kind of like the show. (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> is that the ring of your endorsement am I picking it up right well I have to say I liked it significantly less than that maybe I was like too you know nimble brained when I put it on or something but I I really quite emphatically disliked it uh, I think first of all it's a, a good to possibly great idea for a show mile Ru- Rudolph is just untouchably great in everything uh, it does look wonderful it you know it's drawing you into that world of just ultra beyond ultra wealth i mean as wealthy as human beings uh can be uh anyway i thought it was just an execution of painfully stupid sitcom with absolutely no pizzazz i i was i was lazy and wrote a lot of wasted talent on both the writing and the performing side a lot of wasted money it looks beautiful uh i just thought the writing was terrible i mean um and I also think it's caught Nicole in something of a of a of a um, dilemma, which I think Dana put her finger on, which is where are we in the sort of life cycle of of privilege and the sort of asset boom that for forty years has produced this class of people in America? Uh, I'm at the rage phase, you know, in response to it, you know, this sort of totally unaccountable, you know, el- economic elite and uh, the, their warp, warping of democracy. It's like, I'm not in a mood to, A, laugh about it, or to have her be humanized, right? So it's kind of caught in this weird dilemma, which is if you humanize her, you lose the single joke, and you lose a viewer like me, who just finds her repellent. But if you keep her this idiotic, flat caricature, it's just the show's just a joke machine, like, you know, a la the Beverly Hillbillies. I got to... Three episodes in, and I was like, I closed my browser. What? If, what do you think, Nicole?
1: Oh boy, um, I was able to watch all six of the episodes that are currently available, but I do agree that there is just no, there's no accountability. There's no. It's very generic. Um, so we hear these cracks about how her ex-husband, you know, um, had these shady business practices, and you know, did these really. Um, you know, kind of manipulative uh, things to accumulate his wealth, but nobody presses on that. Nobody says exactly what those things are. Um, And uh, there's one episode where some people are trapped on a roller coaster in the Philippines, and it turns out that Molly owns it. She owns these, these companies that have these poorly maintained uh, amusement parks um, as a result of the divorce and the people eventually get off but we don't figure out how or why you know and it's like well you've got all this money to take your um, your staff to Miami or attempt to take your staff to Miami and you fly your colleague to his daughter's soccer match well what what did you do to try to help these people over there in the philippines um make this you know rescue happen so there are those kinds of gaps that i find telling uh in the writing um and it is difficult to kind of wrap your mind around this idea that we're supposed to feel sorry for her as a billionaire right and i think that's when we get into kind of this um I don't know, maybe this a little bit of a watered-down feminist kind of look of like, mm. oh, but she's a woman who actually she helped build her ex's company. She sacrificed so much. Of course she deserves this money and we should just kind of wrap her up in bubble wrap and make sure that she's protected and that we root for her. So there's like that kind of stuff that's happening as well.
0: Mm-hmm. I don't know. Mm.
1: I still very much want to eat the rich right now. So it's... <laughs> um... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
0: Well, right. I'm with you on that exactly. And Dana, I'd add to that and say, you know, there's no doubt in my mind that people of that level of wealth regard, quote unquote, real life or quote unquote, the real workplace or the real workday or real colleagues as a kind of zoo filled with these specimens, these har-har specimens. And um, the show kind of indulges that in a weird way, right? Like, I I just, to me, this was just fingernails on on a blackboard.
2: I mean, I do think that the show, to some degree, I agree, and I said myself it could go much further in considering these questions, yeah. but in the tension between the Michaela J. Rodriguez character, Sophia is her name, and Maya Rudolph's character you do get some of these exact, you know, conversations that we're trying to have. And there's a moment, I think it's in the second or third episode. So maybe even Steve, having only seen the first three, you've seen it. But there's a moment when, um, when my Rudolph's character delivers this very heartfelt speech about her trying to find who she is again after her divorce and how hard it's been for her. And, you know, sort of getting, trying to get Sophia on her side. And at the end of it, there's this beat. And then Michaela J. Rodriguez's character just says, yeah, I don't really care about all that because I'm focused on something else. And I think if the show tapped harder into that tension between the two of them, right? I mean, Sophia is seen as somewhat overly uptight about her, you know, the foundation and about going to work and doing her job every day. But that's because she has principles that the the Maya Rudolph character doesn't have. And I think if the show dug harder into that and maybe indulged a little bit less our pleasure in, you know, the the absurdity of, of Molly's privilege, that it might actually go somewhere. But I have to agree with you guys. I feel this feels like it was conce- conceived in a different time, a time before, you know, the pandemic exacerbated these questions and just made made these kind of class comedies so much more untenable unless they ask the really hard questions about as you say Nicole eating the rich.
1: One one last issue that I have is that so far we're seeing that her money is kind of swaying um, you know, her staff over to her side. So Sophia is really, you know, has started to make up excuses to come over so she can get fed at this at her house because um, Molly has an incredible chef. Um, but we don't really fully see how Molly is changing necessarily with her uh, contact with these people beyond, oh, I'm realizing that, you know, maybe the friends that I have weren't really my friends after all. And maybe I can't, um, maybe I have to like figure out who I am more. She's not really recognizing, oh, these are working people who can't just get up and go to Miami. They may have other people that they may be responsible for and things like that. So I'm waiting for more of a change in Molly's mindset as opposed to her staff being like okay great there's a rich person who can take us to a spa you know for a mental health day let's let's take advantage of that so I think that's another reason that I'm kind of a little um skeptical about how good of a show it is because we just see these people coming on board to the benefits of being wealthy and not necessarily Molly's character recognizing the benefits of not being
0: wealthy Mm. all right well um the show is loot it's on apple tv plus uh if it has some avid fans out there among our listeners uh, shoot us an email we'd love to hear why you like it i think we were pretty tepid on it all right moving on all right now is the moment in our podcast we typically discuss business dana i'm sure we have some what's uh, what's up this week
2: Steve, we have but one item of business this week. We wanted to tell you about today's Slate Plus segment. This week, once again, we have a listener question. We have a good backlog of those right now, actually. This question comes from a listener named Zach, who wrote in to say that he actually prefers to know the outcome of a story before he gets to the end. In other words, he prefers for certain stories to be, quote-unquote, spoiled the uh, the bugbear of all critics am I or am I not spoiling something about this movie this book etc. So Zach is wondering how we feel about this idea and whether we think spoilers should be feared or sometimes embraced. So if you're a Slate Plus member, you can look forward to hearing us talk about our attitude toward plot revelations at the end of the show. Okay, Steve, what's next?
0: All right. Well, good luck to you. Leo Grand is a scaled down sex far scaled down in the sense that it takes place. Almost entirely within a single hotel room uh, over a period of few months. It stars Emma Thompson as Nancy Stokes. That's not her real name, though. She's assumed this identity to meet a young man in that hotel room. She's hired the also pseudonymous Leo Grand to have sex with her. And as she confesses, to help her find sexual satisfaction for the first time in her life the film stars daryl mccormack uh irish actor as her paramour for hire it is written by katie brand it's directed by sophie hyde let's listen to a clip we're going to hear the two characters meet for the first time they're going to make some small talk but uh the emma thompson character nancy is trying very hard to get comfortable with the whole arrangement let's listen are you irish yes i am
1: so have you been doing this long (laughs) a little while now yeah Long enough to know some things. Do you enjoy it? You know what, I love it, Nancy. Meeting all kinds of people.
0: Getting up to all sorts of things. Mutual pleasure. You don't feel demeaned, then? Not at all. Or degraded? No. But what if you meet someone and you really just don't want to do it? Hasn't happened yet. Really? Really? (laughs) I find that astonishing. How many of you? Been? Oh, a gentleman never tells. Oh, of course, yes. You don't have to worry, Nancy. This is just about us tonight. So what is your fantasy? Dana, what'd you make of this movie?
2: I mean, first of all, in your intro, I kind of disagree with the, the, the genre categorization of it as a as a farce. And then when I thought, when you called it a farce, I thought, that doesn't feel right. But what is it exactly as a genre? I mean, it really is sort of a a, a comedy drama in which sex is the driving... Content of the story, which is a somewhat unusual thing to find in mainstream Hollywood movies, right? I mean, there's just something so direct about this this movie story that I really, really liked. The very first scene that you see uh, right after the credits is, you know, essentially him showing up at her hotel door and we already have the the setup, the prearranged setup, um, which is that this woman who's never had an orgasm, she seems to be in her 60s somewhere, she's a widow, uh, has hired a sex worker to come in and try to sort of introduce her to her own body. And so in a way, it's a sort of um, prearranged scenario, right? I mean, you're pretty sure where the movie is going to go in terms of it being an exploration of this this one woman's sexuality. But it goes to a lot of unexpected places, too. And I think I had heard good things about this movie. I was the one who suggested that we we do it on the show. But... I was surprised and excited by what it tried to do with that unusual format. I think my fear had been that there would be something cutesy about this movie and that it would sort of have tinkly, you know, comedic piano music. I mean, maybe that's why the word farce just felt wrong to me, is mm-hmm. that it's not yeah. sort of about, it's not about the the comic incongruity of the idea that this older woman would want sex or something. And I was afraid it might be condescending in that way. Like, isn't it cute that this school mom, you know, she's a former school teacher who was actually a religious education teacher, right? So she spent her whole career basically discriminating. Discouraging young women from expressing their sexuality in any way, uh, to, to being somebody who's trying to discover herself. And the movie takes that really seriously. I mean, it's funny, too, especially Emma Thompson's performance. Often, this character is unintentionally funny, right? Because she is so um, easily flustered by the idea of, you know, her own desire. But it takes her desire to get to know her body and for the rest of her life going forward after her widowhood to to have more meaning, right? And to have more connection to her body uh, very seriously. And I, I think it also takes the notion of sex work seriously, although I'm curious what you guys think of Leo Grant himself, the character played by Daryl McCormick. He's, there's something so almost saintly about him, so uh, completely in touch with his body and her body and the idea of sexuality and the idea of sex work. And there seems to be very little... Ambivalence uh, in in his character toward you know this situation that he finds himself in or toward sex work or toward I don't know just just anything in life you see, except for some um, some backstory that is given about his family which becomes kind of the the character driver for his character. He just there's something almost almost angelic about him, and that seemed a little bit to me romanticizing of of what sex work is or can be and I wonder if that bothered you at all, but overall, I would one hundred percent send people to this movie. I think it's beautifully done, and Emma Thompson gives maybe the performance of her career
1: yeah, I love this movie um, I thought it was fairly well done um overall, but i you know I did have a quibble with. Uh, Leo's character Um, because even though yes he is very like sex positive and he is just you can actually see that he is he has really dedicated his life to providing pleasure Um, it's still kind of like it's still a tale of a sex worker with a sad beginning right and it's just like do all sex workers have to have a sad tale in order to like justify or like you know shore up their personalities or their character uh, on screen and that's what that was a little disappointing and then also um, any possible references to any same-sex encounters he may have had they were just kind of glided over um, or they were very chaste like he, he mentions uh, a a male customer who would just have him dress up as a cat and ignore him uh, for their time together. And there was no physical contact, there was no sex. And I was just like, okay, that's fine. But, you know, if this is a person who is dedicated to providing pleasure to whoever reaches out to him, whoever books him. Um, why do we have to present his same-sex encounters as just being, you know, the comedy uh, of his life, of his uh, profession? So I thought that was that was just a, you know, a couple of quibbles that I had about it. But overall, I think first of all, he is fine as hell. I just <laughs> he is so good looking and then I love an Irish accent, so I was just all there. and his the repetition, of her name. He kept calling, um, he would constantly say Nancy's name, you know, sometimes in a little condescending way, sometimes, you know, like a teacher to a student. um, But I think that that's really important, because it is an acknowledgement of who she is, or who she was pretending to be, because Nancy is not her real name. Mm. But it's kind of like, I know who you are, I know who I'm here with, you are not just another customer, you are Nancy right? And I think that that's very important. And it's also just really nice when people call your name.
0: Yeah. Well, it's interesting too, Nicole, as you say, it's not her real name. So in a sense, he's both creating an intimacy while drawing a boundary around it, which is that you're, for the intents and purposes of this, I'm Leo Grand, not my real name, you're Nancy Stokes, not your real name. And we're going to create something apart from both of our lives inside here. And in some sense, the movie is about how she can't abide by that, ultimately. And and I don't think the movie argues that she necessarily sh- should have. But um, it's her breaking of the boundary, in some sense, that made the movie uh, quite interesting to me. I, I really, really enjoyed the movie. Um, uh, from the opening shot, which is easy to forget, but it's actually a shot of him preparing in a cafe before he, he goes in, in some sense. It's almost like an actor uh, about to go on stage or right before the camera rolls, Um, he's got his head ducked, he's in a knit cap, we see him from the back, and he's making a kind of singing noise to himself, I think, and you get the sense of him, like, this is in the locker room. It's like, this for him is a job, right? He is very clear about that. He may, so much so that I'm not 100% sure we know how much of what he's saying to her prior to opening up, Reflects anything about his inner self, the saintliness or whatever i mean there 's this really interesting line that he walks from being very physically present, conversationally present, but in some sense um, you know uh, absent in a way it's not it 's not him that he 's offering you he 's offering you a service. That's when the movie becomes really interesting to me for a couple different reasons. Very quickly, the first is that, yeah, 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 the sort of sales pitch for the movie is middle-aged woman, last shot at sexual fulfillment, on and on and on. That's that's a good movie. But it's um the real movie beneath it is she's a mother and he's an emotionally abandoned son. And I think, Nicole, I totally agree with you that there's something a uh, cliche about the sex worker with a sort of shameful backstory that motivates them into sex work. But I, at the same time I liked that balance between, you know, she's been a very withholding mother, right? And she doesn't quite see that in herself. And um and 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 that's where the two of them begin to become real to one another. And that raises this really interesting question which is, you know, she, when you get close to someone you want to have almost the equivalent of object permanence with them, right? So object permanence is that phase in the consciousness of a young child where they realize that something is still there even when they, you know, when they can't see it. And and there's like subject permanence when you get beyond a certain point of familiarity or certainly intimacy with someone that's when they're real, right? And you want that reality. That reality is this person has a subjectivity that's beyond mine, that's completely theirs, and intimacy happens when they show it to me. And I believe that the thing that they're showing me is that thing they have apart from me. And what he's withholding is exactly that, as a sex worker, as the provider of a service. And Dana, that to me was what was fascinating, because it's it's the interplay between the given and withheld here that's so interesting and there's a real dignity to him saying you hired me to do x i'm providing x you have now demanded y and that's where his true self begins to surface it's in her violation of that boundary um and there it gets someplace i think really emotionally complex and they're both terrific terrific actors
2: Yeah, particularly in the scene where you kind of finally see him lose his composure, and I won't spoil why or what happens afterward, but that is a great scene in the movie because up until then, I mean, I think that my only critique of this movie that I mentioned earlier is that at times he is too altruistic of a character, right? And that you don't see um, the ambivalence or the struggle beneath his surface. But at the moment when you do, it's it's really a great break and a, and a great acting moment for him. We haven't really talked about, you know, the, the whole cloistered feel of this movie, but I mean, it really is a chamber, chamber piece, right? Literally, it all takes place, almost completely all, except for one scene in the hotel bar, it takes place in this one hotel room that she rents a few different times for a few different assignations with him. It really could easily be a play because it has that that cloistered kind of feeling. Um, But that makes it really work too. That really goes with the intimacy of the script. I kept thinking of my dinner with Andre (laughs) throughout, Mm -hmm. you know, because it's really a movie about two people in conversation. It's sort of like my sex date with Andre, (laughs) you know, (laughs) and, uh, and by the end of the movie, it feels really huge. Just that the two of them have one meeting that isn't in that room. That's in the hotel bar where one other character enters in. Um, This could easily be, be restaged as a play. And I think would be really wonderful in that format.
1: Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I think that moment when Nancy is talking about um, the routine of her sex life and, and she is describing, you know, what would happen with her husband, who was her only sexual partner before Leo, I started to tear up because it was so I mean, Emma Thompson is fantastic, but also it was such a familiar thing that so many women go through where you sacrifice your own pleasure or you have been constantly denied pleasure for the greater good or you're told that it is something shameful. Um, But I started to tear up. I got kind of – I was surprised at how emotional I got, and then she started to cry herself, and I was like, oh, no, don't do it. Um, But I just – I was really – I don't know, connected to that moment of feeling sad for this woman who had not been able to experience Just the beauty and the relief of a really good orgasm, not just like, not just, you know, the sexual pleasure of it, but, you know, it's a really good stress relief when life is kicking your ass. So Nancy had all these issues with her children and her life, and at the very least, she could have at least had a good time, you know, by herself, and she didn't. And I was just really moved by that. Um, And I'm, you know, even though the whole movie is about this moment of her trying to find herself physically and find pleasure in her life and get reconnected to her body or connected to it in a way she'd never had period um it still i think it was very well done and it didn't like hammer that across uh as as much as i w- i was afraid of that i was afraid it was just going to be constantly i'm a terrible person i'm a terrible woman or that kind of thing but it was actually very it was actually handled very well so i just really love this movie
2: Yeah, and Nicole, the way that that is resolved, and again, without spoiling anything, the kind of way that she starts to find her way into her own sexual pleasure is really unexpected and subverts, you know, the idea that he is some sort of sexual savior. And just the ending of the movie, I won't give it away, but the very last shot, I think, is is really beautiful and um, at once kind of moving and courageous on Emma Thompson's part because she's completely nude and just a, a really poetic little little button at the end of the movie. I, I thought it was one of the best movies I've seen this year. I really loved this movie.
0: Here, here, Yeah. Good luck to you, Leo Grand. It's easy to see. It's on Hulu. If you subscribe, check it out. Uh, let us know what you thought of it. Okay, moving on. Okay, well, the James Webb Space Telescope has sent back its first rather astonishing images. Uh, As Jamie Green writes in Slate Magazine, the telescope offers scientists unprecedented views of the early universe, galactic and stellar evolution and planets around other stars in our galaxy. Jamie, welcome to the podcast.
4: Hi, thanks so much for having me.
0: I should say you are a terrific science writer and you have a forthcoming book, correct? The Possibility of Life about aliens. Yeah. Talk for a (laughs) second about that. When is that coming and what's it about?
4: Yeah, that's coming out next April. Um, In sort of the most literal sense, it's about how we imagine alien life in science and in science fiction, sort of putting those both together. And instead of asking, you know, whether or not there's life on other worlds, what are the odds? It's just looking at the possibilities of the different... Ways it could be and what science tells us and what sci-fi tells us. It also, you know, like almost all science writing is a reflection of how we understand life on Earth, how we understand what it means to be human by imagining what the other ways are that life could be.
0: Yeah. So we, in other words, we booked exactly the right guest for this segment. <laughs> I mean, I, I love that angle of approach. You write in your piece, this is one of those big science moments, the kind that revolutionizes a field and galvanizes the public. Talk, talk a little bit about um, that first part of it. Uh, it revolutionizes this field because why? But then let's, then let's get into the really juicy stuff about um, what this means uh, about our own place in the universe. But why does this revolutionize this field?
4: Sure. So uh, this telescope is giving astronomers views deep into space far back in time more than any other telescope has. And also it has much more precision for looking at objects closer up. So, um, you know, the two predecessors we compare it to are Hubble, which is another one of those big public science moments, I think, like any big, beautiful space image you can think of that from before a week ago is probably a Hubble image. Um, And there was also the Spitzer telescope, much less famous, but also a very important telescope. And the JWST just blows them out of the water with the um, precision that it can get on close images and how far in space and time it can see. Because, of course, when you're looking at stars very, very far away or galaxies very, very far away, you're seeing light that left them billions and billions of years ago. So you're seeing them as they were very close to the the beginning of the universe.
1: I have a very silly question um, <laughs> because I am not in any way a science person at all. But are we able to then kind of like reverse image and see where Earth is in relation to Everything else, you know, like so people can like also understand that we are just a mere little piece of dust. Yeah, <laughs> that's not something that this telescope
4: is going to be doing. It doesn't orbit the Earth. It's out in a sort of different gravitational stable point that we don't have to worry about. But so it's pretty far from Earth. Um But the way it's set up, I don't think it's ever going to take a picture of Earth. But there have been other pictures taken by probes that were sent farther out into the solar system. Um, The most famous one is probably the pale blue dot image, which was taken by Voyager in 1980. Um, And so that probe was on its way out of the solar system. And actually Carl Sagan, who was working on the mission, convinced them to turn it to face its camera towards Earth for one last picture as it was heading out. And the picture of Earth is like maybe one pixel. It is literally a pale blue dot. And um, Sagan actually wrote a whole book about that image and the many lessons that it has to teach us about our smallness and our insignificance and the importance of this planet. I think he took from it and subsequent people took from it a pretty environmentalist point of view. Jamie, it
2: seems like part of the, the thrill that ran through people on seeing these images, and it was something that was really remarkable on social media when the images broke. I mean, people who never talk about space or science in my social media feeds were going crazy for you know sharing these images and, and sharing their excitement about them. And it seems like a lot of that flowed from this, what you heard very commonly phrased was, you know, this must mean that we're not alone, right? Like this kind of shift in scale and the way that we think about the universe made it seem like... It's just statistically impossible that there isn't life out there somewhere. Yet part of what your piece in Slate about this um, this new telescope and these new images argues is that the mere fact that you know we've we've now shifted our our scale of thinking to something much bigger doesn't necessarily imply the presence of life, but that that needn't be a disappointing thought. In other words, the feeling of wonder or sublimity these images inspire, you know would would obtain even if they did not imply that there was life out there. And I wonder if you could you could talk about that a bit.
4: Yeah, I I saw a lot of that reaction, too. And it's it makes sense, you know, because I think people do want there to be other life in the galaxy, in the universe. Um, I do think it's also important to differentiate. And this might get a little too wonky, but the search for life elsewhere such that science does it is within our own galaxy, whether we're looking for signals of intelligent life or the chemical signs of, you know, biology on other planets. We only have a chance of finding that within our galaxy. But this telescope shows us all these other galaxies. And it really seems like an odds thing. It's like, look, if there are in this one picture, so the the deep field image is a piece of sky as big as if you held a grain of sand out at arm's length. That's the amount of sky real estate in which we have this picture of thousands of galaxies. And so it really hits home the abundance. Like there are that many galaxies and people leap to, well, then there's no way we're alone. And I think that that reflects how important that question is to people. It is like their biggest question because, of course, that's the part that lay people can relate to. You know, uh, an astronomer sees that picture and they might be really excited about the red shifting or the different shapes of early galaxies that can teach us about how galaxies have evolved in the billions of years that the universe has existed. Or they're excited about gravitational lensing, which was those like swoopy galaxies that seem like they're making a circle. Um, but. What a layperson understands is life, is being on a planet, is being on earth. And so that's how you're able to make a connection to this image that otherwise is very beautiful but doesn't carry meaning for you. Mm. And so we make that leap to how do I make sense of all this real estate? It's places for life to be, life like me, the viewer.
0: Mm. I'll give you another layperson's response, which is, (laughs) you know, my understanding of Definition of sublimity is something that is so almost terrifyingly larger than the powers of human comprehension. But of course, as a human being with subjectivity, that's how you're experiencing it through your own, the keyhole of your own consciousness. And it, it's it's mostly to me a question of mind-blowing scale that reflects back on our place in the universe in a couple of different ways. One is that it certainly adds to the notion that you know there's basically trillion to the trillionth power chances to produce the completely unlikely string of events that produced life and then intelligent life so essentially you know the monkeys typing for all of eternity eventually produce hamlet similarly a universe of this sheer amount of scale in both time and space will eventually produce us so any sense of foreordained destinies, or, or you know, I mean, I, I wouldn't want to get into religion. I think there's a way of reconciling this with the religious worldview, but certainly the role of sheer accident presents itself to us uh, uh, when trying to contemplate how our status as intelligent beings, um, you know, was made possible. Um, and then, secondly the unanswerability of the cosmos to human needs in the face (laughs) of that scale. I mean, I, I wonder how people, I guess what I'm asking Jamie is I wonder how people assimilate under themselves and their own patterns of belief and behavior, the sense that the universe is so big as to imply a kind of wonderful in its way indifference to us.
4: One of the interesting ideas that I ran into when I was researching and writing my book was that there is huge meaning on either side of the outcome. If it turns out that there is mm-hmm. other life in the universe, then we are part of this, you know, cosmic community. We get to find these new sort of long lost cousins and we get to learn about all the the various ways that the universe solves life's problems or... If we're alone, then that is hugely meaningful and adds all of this weight and value to life. If we're just a fluke, like how yeah. incredibly special that this one planet's chemistry did some weird stuff that started replicating and replicating and growing and evolving and created what we have here. So I feel like you can find that sort of almost spiritual meaning in any possible outcome. But what's really challenging is being in this not knowing is not being Mm -hmm. able to figure out what it means. And in the face of that, and I, I think that's part of what makes this evoke the sublime is that we don't know how to put the pieces together. We don't know what sense to make of it. It's just big. And it's just not ours you know, if there's life throughout the universe, then the universe is a place for life. But if there's no other life in the universe, that makes the universe something even more alien than an alien life form would be. And when I was working on this piece, I talked to um, an anthropologist at Yale named Lisa Masseri, who I also interviewed for my book. She's this fantastic thinker about sort of the meaning that we make from this science. Um, And she told me that her favorite image, or the one that made her gasp, wasn't the deep field image, wasn't the one that showed thousands and thousands of galaxies. It was this image of um, a set of five galaxies called Stefan's Quintet, where there are four of them are in this sort of gravitational dance where they're, you know, merging or pulling each other apart. And it's a quintet, because when you take a picture of them, there's a fifth galaxy that sort of gets in the frame. Um, And she said that You know, she was like, why did this make me gasp? And it's because it's a piece of the universe that is not for us and has nothing to do with us, but still shows relationships, still shows entities, these galaxies that have these gravitational and spatial and collisional relationships with each other. And it's completely alien and completely incomprehensible and it's, it's not to say that galaxies are sentient, but there is just something there that is huge and is happening mm. and has nothing to do with us. And I, I thought that that was really um, I found that way of looking at those pictures really moving because it reminds us that we're not the point of the universe. We're not the center of the universe. And there's a lot going on there that um, is beyond us, but that this telescope lets us see.
0: I mean, that answer was so good. It made me feel like I had been smoking pot for like six hours <laughs> and like just, you know, shooting the shit with my doormates trying to blow each other's minds. I love the idea that it's either one or the other. And both are equally mind blowing.
1: I wanted to know, like we have these images that are fantastic, but what's next? What now? What do we do with this? data and what what could we possibly do after this with this data?
4: Yeah I mean the telescope has four main missions and these images I'm sure there is important science encoded in them but they are also beautiful. They are public outreach you know they are about getting people excited about this very expensive telescope (laughs) that NASA spent decades working on you know and also just keeping the public excited about science and about space. Um, But there is a lot of big science that's going to be happening with observations from this telescope. Um, In that deep field image, you can see a couple of the oldest galaxies in there. They're like the really red smudges are over 13 billion years old. So we're seeing them as they were less than a billion years after the Big Bang. And so there's going to be a lot of research In the telescope's observations, looking at the earliest galaxies, the earliest stars, like literally the first generations of stars and galaxies. And we're going to be able to see them in ways that we never have before. So to learn how the, you know, soup that followed the Big Bang turned into these structures Um, much closer to Earth within the Milky Way, within our own galaxy, the telescope is also going to be making observations of the atmospheres of exoplanets, so planets around other stars. And one of the first images that was released on that big, buzzy press conference day was actually the spectrum of an exoplanet's atmosphere. And this is the one that laypeople probably don't even remember happened, but the scientists and science writers were losing their minds over this. So basically, the telescope looks at starlight filtering through the atmosphere of an exoplanet and can tell from what's absorbed, like what frequencies of the starlight are blocked, can tell what molecules are in the atmosphere. So you can see, is there water vapor? Is there oxygen? They were able to see that this planet, which was um, sort of a Jupiter- I think it was like half the size of Jupiter, that it had clouds in its atmosphere. So that to me is just wildly exciting because this is actually one of the ways where scientifically the telescope is going to be able to start giving us clues about whether there might be life on other planets.
0: All right. Well, Jamie, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. This was absolutely amazing. Please, please join us again soon.
4: Yeah, I would love to.
0: Yeah. And we actually have a great excuse. Uh, in mid-April, your book, The Possibility of Life, about aliens and science and sci-fi is coming out. And uh, we'd love to talk to you again. So come back soon.
4: Thanks so much.
0: All right. Now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse. Dana, what, uh, what do you have?
2: Steve, I have an endorsement that's a kind of corollary or a, a helping link for our, our segment on this James Webb telescope and the space pictures that we talked about. It is a simple website. I love a website that just does one simple thing and does it really well. And what this site does is take the um, the images that were released, the uh, the incredible images of individual, you know, nebulae and the things that, that Jamie was talking about, the Stevens Quintet formation that Jamie mentioned that she was so blown away by. It takes seven of those images and places them in context for scale. So all this website does is allow you to click on each one of those seven images, which you can find all over the place, you know, these gorgeous images of these individual galaxies and nebulae and space formations and show you how far apart they are from each other in space. So you just see this big, huge, what looks like a starry field, but every twinkly dot that looks like a star is actually an entire galaxy. And, uh, and, as you click on each image it'll just move through that field to show you how far away they are from each other so that gives you not just a sense of the beauty of what this telescope is capturing but the just unbelievable scope and you know why it's, it's blowing people away so much so um, we'll put a link to that site on the show page it's not the only place you can look at these beautiful images but it's the only place i've found that gives you a little bit of that awesome sense of scale
0: hmm. oh, that sounds amazing nicole what do you got
1: okay so i am also going to um add a little something that's on theme I'm going to endorse a romance novel called A Lady Awakened by Cecilia Grant it came out in 2012 and it is about um, a recent widow Martha Russell who needs to provide an heir um, in order to keep her land keep her wealth Um, but obviously her husband has died and so she uh, decides to approach this um exiled rake rogue who has been, you know, sent to the country to stop spending so much money, um, in order to give her an heir, but she does not really enjoy um you know, she does not really enjoy sex at all. And um and so she has to like endure his advances, right? Um this sounds more uh terrible than what it actually is. But what makes this romance so good Um, Not only is this about a woman, you know, kind of discovering or rediscovering her sexuality, but what makes this romance so interesting is that they have bad sex for quite a while, um, which is very, very unusual. Usually in romance novels, when the couple finally gets together, everything is fantastic. It's magic. the, The man is like the perfect lover. But not so in this case. So we get to see the journey of how they have to like learn each other and get to know each other and how she has to relax and be more comfortable in her body. And it's just um it's just really really good. It's something it's a book that has stayed with me since I first read it. So I highly recommend it. It's called A Lady Awakened by Cecilia Grant.
0: Oh, that sounds cool. All right. So, I took a circuitous route to this uh Endorsement, but uh, let me describe it. I'm a huge fan of the old LA punk band X. Like when people talk about 70s, early 80s punk, same names you always hear them: Sex Pistols, you know the Ramones. Obviously, huge pioneers. Both, you know, no one ever talks about, or very rarely talks about X. Just one of the greatest bands. And then John Doe goes on to have a tremendously productive solo career, singing, you know, kind of like country-ish more folkish music than punk uh, he's I think a wonderful maybe one of the truly most underrated songwriters there is and I'm listening to this John Doe song called help me make it through the night and I'm like what a tr- what a tremendously good song deserves to be a standard well jokes on me it is a standard so here's where we uh, the circuit starts to really loop in on itself unrelatedly I'm you always read about Chris Christopherson, you know, the actor and um, and musician and songwriter uh, that in addition to being this bedazzlingly good looking man who was a movie star, uh, you know, and and had a good, very good career in music, a big career in music, that he was a, a, a gifted, gifted songwriter. And everyone always points to that one Chris Christopherson song that everybody knows, which is panel. That's right. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> me and Bobby McGee made <laughs> Elbowing famous. Elbowing
2: each other out of the way, Nicole and I dancing. Yeah, I one. know. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. <laughs> me, and, me and Bobby McGee, by the, the Janice Joplin made famous, is a Chris Christofferson tune that everyone knows. Well, it turns out that Help Me Make It Through the Night is the other one. I think it's probably the second biggest commercial hit that he wrote. Everybody has covered it. It is such a perfectly delivered little gem. Uh, a little country standard, you know, just uh, just in, this, in the American songbook, uh, one of the great cu- country songs of all time. And then I found the definitive recording of it, which was by Sammy Smith, a woman who uh, who's most well-known for that song. It broke her huge commercially in 1970. But then funnily enough, she was one of the very, very few uh, women in outlaw country in the 70s, even though she'd made her name with this, in some ways, very standard kind of pop cu- country pop ballad. Uh, she became very outlaw. So my endorsement, having completed the circuitous loop, is help me make it through the night, both the John Doe cover and the Sammy Smith cover. And so as per usual, we'll link to all of the above. Nicole, thank you so much for coming back on the show. As always, it really, truly a delight. Please come back soon.
1: Thank you. Of course I will.
0: Excellent. And Dana, week after week, it's just uh, it's the best.
1: Thanks, Steve. It was a good day.
0: You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page. That's slate.com slash culture fest. And you can email us at culture fest at slate.com. Our introductory music is by Nicholas Patel, the wonderful movie composer and other kinds of composers. Our production assistant is Madeira Gough. Our producer is Cameron Drews for Nicole Perkins and Dana Stevens. I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us, and uh, I hope you join us again soon.
2: Hello and welcome to the Slate Plus segment of the Slate Culture Gab Fest, where we talk to you about goofy things that don't quite constitute topics. They're just excuses for conversation. And I like this excuse. It's based on a listener email from a listener named Zach who wrote in to say, well, he starts off by talking about Slow Horses. Stephen, the book series by Mick Herron. I don't remember if it was you or Julia that endorsed the book. I know you love the show Slow Horses. Have you read the book?
0: No, it was Julia who endorsed, but I'm just dying to go to Maine, uh, find a hammock, and stay there until I've read all five or six or seven of them.
2: Well, this listener started reading them based on, oh, yes, you're right. He says it is Julia's recommendation that got him going. And he says, mostly I've been able to enjoy it, but about 50 pages till the end, I just want to know how it ends. And not because I want the pleasure of finishing the book. I want to know how it ends, then I want to finish reading the book. Uh, I think this is a very unusual approach to reading, but then when we happen to float this in our our meeting about topics, Nicole, you mentioned that you sometimes read in the same way. So I wanted to hear about the the point of view of somebody who reads the spoiler first and then goes back and reads the book, (laughs) or at least sometimes does it. Tell me, what are your rules about
1: that? Yeah. So depending on the type of book it is, I will read at least um, anywhere from the last two to three pages of a book, which is a it's actually a lot, but I just like to know what I'm about to get into. Is this something that I'm going to want to read? So I uh, I read the last few pages, um, and then I go back and I, I start it. And uh, I don't really mind about spoilers too much. I don't, that doesn't bother me to, you know, um, but I, I like, I like knowing how the book is going to end, um, you know, and sometimes they don't always end on like the actual, you know, resolution, they just end with kind of like the neat little bow that has tied everything together. So I don't feel like I really um, am spoiling myself when I do that. I mean, I'm curious, what kind of ending would make you not want to read the book? You know, what what would you
2: see at the ending of a book that would make you close it and say, I'm not going to go on with this one?
1: Oh, um, so that has happened in um, some of the thrillers that I that I've read before. Uh, I like reading thrillers and mysteries, uh, things like that, and obviously some romance novels. And I love John. I love genre fiction a lot. Um, but if I read, if I'm trying to like pick up a thriller, and at, and I look to see what happens at the end, if it's kind of like a couple gets together that maybe is not who I thought should get together, or if the killer keeps going, you know, if there's a, a killer involved or the killer is still alive at the end and he keeps going, um, I may not necessarily want want to keep reading. Um.
2: Does this hold for movies too? Do you ask people to spoil movies for you who have already seen a genre-style movie so that you have the suspense relieved going in?
1: Oh, I absolutely go to Wikipedia and read the plot. Yeah wow, my mind reels because I
2: I never watch trailers or read reviews before seeing a movie. I mean, in part, that is a professional choice because I want to make sure that I'm not going in with a bias or like accidentally plagiarizing something that I read and forgot that I read. But I try to know as little as possible. I always feel like when I'm deciding whether or not to see a movie that it's almost like peeking under a manhole for a second. Like, okay, Nicolas Cage is in it. All right, that's all I want to know. I'll see it, right? And I'll just try to know the bare minimum possible.
1: Yeah, again, it depends on the type of movie. If it's something, if it's like a psychological logical um thriller or something like that. Um I try to go in completely blank. I won't I won't watch the um anything beyond maybe like the first trailer. Um something like that. Yes, but if it is like a rom-com or a big superhero movie or something like that, then I'm I'm going to go. If it's a scary movie, it's a horror movie, I'm absolutely going to read the Wikipedia page for it. I don't like horror movies. Um especially if there's like a lot of body gore and stuff like that, um that kind of thing. So I will I will read the the plot and I'll have someone spoil it for me. But if it is something like um a historical drama or something um like a film noir or something like that then I will just go into it raw because I want I want the I want the thrill I want the newness okay
2: Steve over to you what about you and I want to hear books versus movies or TV shows you know how how you feel differentially about spoiling and or you know knowing the plot in advance of any of those
0: I so I really like going in naive to. Everything like I don't want to have anything about it pre-digested. I want to go in like tabula rasa, blank slate. Just go in, sit there, and let it work on me on its own terms, or not. Um, At the same time, I think there's an interesting distinction here, which is, you know, the the the, at least one emailer to us about the subject of spoilers and plot was pointing out how dependent upon plot twists. In a lazy way, a lot of popular culture has gotten and like not go, needing to go in not knowing is just a form of like rote viewership uh, of, of, uh, of its own kind that it's 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 kind of the sixth sense effect of, you know, this this, you know, retroactive rewriting of everything you've just I mean, not that that's that common, but the reveal, right? It's like Hollywood screenwriters, they get in they get in ruts and they conform to patterns and they, you know, are, you know, they're like the Leo Grands of the writing world. I mean, they're performing for a buck. They have to be. That's the dignity of the job. And, um, you know, and so this is the reveal. This is, you know, I I think that that's a little, a little rote. And then the second thing is that there's just a a basic distinction between, I would say, you know, a genre work and a literary work. Of course, these things are very fluid definitions they flow in into and out of one another they're not fixed at the same time like if you really had to try to nail it down a genre piece you know takes place in a very familiar world but the familiar set of premises you know so you know, spy detective uh cowboy I don't you know romance whatever and um and then tends to be driven by plot right you want to find out do the lovers get together? Does the killer get caught? On and on, and it would almost be, impo- I mean, impossible for me to understand how how a you know your enjoyment of it would take a huge cut if you if you knew ahead of time for certain things. Whereas, I guess if you're being purist about it, literary pleasure has just nothing to do with plot in some sense, but like depth of characterization and originality of language, and on and on. And you go in you know, reading Anna Karenina, knowing, you know, and I don't want to spoil it now, but, you know, I mean, you go into a lot of great works of literature effectively knowing how they end, and that's sort of irrelevant. But I'd give you one more counterpoint, I'll twist it one more time, which is that, to this day, the greatest characterization of narrative, you know, theorization of narrative work is Aristotle's, the first one I think we know of. And, you know, for him, you couldn't have the catharsis of tragedy unless there was a reversal. You know, I think it's peripeteia, And that moment where, for example, Oedipus discovers that he's um, sleeping with his mother, right? And um, and and that's what allows for the moment of recognition when the character, the tragic character, sees his own blindness, effectively. Um, and that brings about the catharsis in the audience. Like, I think there's something to that. I, it's a... You know, not everything aspires to be Sophoclean, you know, but I think a surprising number of works really successfully work at a moment of recognition. Dan, I'll just give you one of my all-time favorites, and I'm so glad I didn't know it. Oh no, I can't do that. It'll ruin it for everyone. Let me put it in a generic way so it won't ruin it for anybody. But one of my all-time favorite movies, the Billy, Billy Wilder movie, uh, The Apartment, if you remember, it just has an extraordinary moment with a little broken compact mirror, makeup mirror. And it's a moment of, of of revelation, reversal, and recognition on the part of the Shirley MacLaine character and on the part of the audience. And it makes you gasp. And I think, I wouldn't have gasped if I had known that moment was coming or what it reveals. So... Uh, I don't know if you can like parse through my answer and come up with a conclusion, but um, I sort of see both sides to the, um, the spoiler debate.
1: Well, see, I, I, what, I like is the execution. So, like, I'm okay with finding Mm. out the end. I'm much more interested in the execution. So, like, Psycho is my favorite movie of all time. And that is not something. And (laughs) and I went into that completely raw as a child. I didn't know what what was coming. But that was fantastic. And I think about that as we're, you know, talking about this now. Like, if would I have read the Wikipedia um, summary of that movie and then been disappointed. I don't know. I don't think so because it was so well executed to me that I just would not have been able to picture it even with a detailed description. So there are, like I said, there are certain, you know, types of books and movies that I go in just completely without any knowledge beyond, you know, a basic summary. Um, But for me, it is much more about the execution. Because if I turn to that last page in a book, that should not be the end of the book, right? That should be like after the resolution has happened. And again, you know, they're just kind of making everything neat and pretty. And so I may not even get like who the murderer was on that last page, you know, but still I just kind of want to know, oh, they end up in Mexico enjoying a vacation. Cool. That's good enough. Let me go see how we get to that vacation. That's kind of like how I feel about it. Um, And I'm not very precious about spoilers. I remember... When everyone was watching Mad Men, you know, Mad Men was on the air. And I tweeted something like, poor Peggy. And a friend of mine was just like, stop spoiling Mad Men. And I said, well, what happened? What do you know happened from me saying poor Peggy?
2: <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, could." Because- <laughs> From what I understand that you could say that about every episode of Mad Men,
1: right? <laughs> exactly, right? Exactly. So I was like, what did I spoil? What do you know about what happened to Peggy from me saying poor Peggy? Because it could have been any, I could have been talking about anything from like, oh, she had a wardrobe malfunction to, you know, Don was terrible to her again, or she got her heart broken. It could have been anything. So what do you know? Those kinds of people irritate me where they're just like Don't talk about any aspect of what I'm watching, what I'm reading, because I don't want to go in expecting to see what you're talking about. I was like, that's ridiculous.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think if if people complain about, you know, any hint in our our conversations or in my reviews of of what happens in a movie, then I would sort of respond saying, well, don't listen to a culture podcast or read movie reviews if you really don't want to know thing one about the, the thing that you're going in to see. But still, there seems, Nicole, to be a tension between your predilection for spoiling things for yourself and Psycho being your favorite movie. I mean, a movie that's completely <laughs> dependent on this wildly unexpected thing happening in the first 20 minutes. If anything, the spoiler in Psycho is when that happens, right? Not what happens, but how early in the movie it happens. Anyway, I'm, I'm completely fascinated by that approach. And Steve, I have one pedantic response to you. Other than to say I basically completely agree with you and I try to go raw into everything, I would just say that the Aristotelian word for recognition is not peripeteia. It's anoragnesis.
0: <laughs> no but the reversal the reversal dana is perpetea and the recognition that results from it is or, uh, is uh,
2: ah the reversal the reversal of expectations yes got it got it um All right. And as far as the conversation, Steve, of literary fiction versus genre fiction, I'm just reminded of this joke about about Citizen Kane and spoiling it. And the idea that somebody walking into Citizen Kane would have their experience ruined if somebody yelled, it's the sled! (laughs) Rosebud (laughs) is the sled. yeah. yeah, yeah. (laughs) Right? I mean, the argument being that sort of the greater a work of art is, the less that it means anything to talk about spoiling the plot or not. All right. Well, thank you for the good question, Zach. That was a really good focus for our Slate Plus segment. If anybody else has ideas for something you'd like us to kick around in Slate Plus, you can always email us at culturefest at slate.com. For Nicole Perkins and Steve Metcalf, I'm Dana Stevens. Thanks so much for being a Slate Plus member, and we will talk to you next week.